0: Last year, so much of the market was dominated by large collections. Are we seeing the end of it? big part of your job is bringing uh, uh, the, the work in the door. Well, certainly
1: I hope not for my own personal sake. <laughs> but, uh, I think that, you know, the old adage of the three Ds, right? Death, debt, and divorce is what drives the market. And those are the three things that will always continue to happen. There's no end date to, to those three.
0: welcome to the artelligence podcast live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works i'm your host marion Maniker. this podcast is brought to you by live art the global art marketplace that puts you in control download the live art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. This week's episode is an interview with Marie Claudia Jimenez. She is the chairman, managing director, and worldwide head of business development, Global Fine Arts for Sotheby's. She came to the auction house from Herrick Feinstein, where she was a partner in the art and cultural property law practice. During her time at Herrick, She was involved in a number of important art restitution cases, including working with the heirs of Kazimir Malevich. She represented the Neue Gallery in their acquisition of Gustav Klimt's portrait of Adele Bloch Bauer, and acted for the estate of Mrs. Sidney F. Brody when that collection was sold in 2010. That sale produced the then record price for any work of art at auction, which was, for Picasso's, nude with green leaves and bust. The interview was recorded at Sotheby's, which is next door to a busy hospital If you hear sirens in the background, now you know why. I hope you'll enjoy it. Okay, MC Jimenez, it is great to see you. Thank you for taking the time to uh, speak to me. Thanks so much. So I thought we could talk a little bit about um, 2021 because it It's been such an extraordinary year in the art market. But to do that, I need to talk just for a second about 2020, which was also an extraordinary (laughs) year in the other direction. But I think a year we thought was going to create all sorts of change. And I don't know about you, but I'm surprised that we're back with the same auction schedule. And I'm also surprised that we've had such a strong year. Did you guys feel coming into 2021 that this would be you know, as powerful a year as it turned out to be?
1: I think we did in the sense that we really felt that the disruption of 2020 was going to lead to even further innovation in the art market and certainly at Sotheby's because it created a momentum of change that was sort of like a train you couldn't stop at that point. You know, there was this idea that the art market is so traditional and in some ways, many, many ways entrenched in the always traditional ways of doing things. And in 2020, you had no choice but to do things differently because of the pandemic. 2021 gave us the opportunity to really build upon that and get to the next level of transformation.
0: And there were some moments within there that I don't think anyone fully expected. I'm particularly thinking of the Robert Colescott sale, um, which, I mean, it was priced very high, so uh, it sounds like you guys were confident going into Mm -hmm. it that there was a market at that level way above anything else that had been sold by him before. But were you prepared for uh, it going to a major institution?
1: I think that was always the idea, especially given the sort of socio-political moment that we were living in at the time that it was sold. It was a very perfect moment for a you know image by a black you know painter that was that powerful in its historical references to go to a major institution. So I think that was always the intention in the way that we priced it and the way we were thinking about that picture.
0: So it went to the Lucas uh, Museum, which will open I guess sometime next year. I'm assuming there were other institutions that you, you uh, expected to be part of that or were part Absolutely. of the
1: Absolutely, yes. It was not the only institution buying for that picture.
0: Maybe there's a jumping ahead, of, uh, but you know there are so many new museums around the world. There are private museums and all. How much of the expectation of the museum market is driving your business?
1: You know, I think that there there was this thought that because of the changes in the AMD regulations re- regarding deaccession, that museums were going to be a major force during the pandemic. And certainly we saw a lot more museum deaccessions, but I think the museums that were in the acquisition you know, phase of their, their um, sort of campaigns were also thinking of it as an opportunity as well. Not only to take on works that were from other museums, but also just to perhaps get in on a certain moment in time.
0: Well, the art market, I think a lot of people don't understand, is a distribution market. The money is what catches people's eyes, but it's really about getting the objects in the right places. And one of the issues with deaccessioning is people make the rather erroneous assumption that somehow the the work of art evaporates because it goes out of one institution and either potentially into private hands or into another institution. So last year so much of the market was dominated by large collections. The Marion collection here, uh, obviously the MacLow collection which was a spectacular success, but also um, Doug Kramer's works Mm -hmm. that was a key part of that same uh, series of sales. And, And Over the last several years, we've had several big collections on the market. And for a period, that sort of was the market, these big collections. Is that, are are we seeing the end of it? big part of your job is bringing uh, uh, the, the work in the door. Well, certainly
1: I hope not for my own personal sake. <laughs> but, uh, I think that, you know, the old adage of the three D's, right? Death, debt, and divorce is what drives the market. And those are the three things that will always continue to happen. There's no end date to, to those three. And as long as we are seeing, you know, momentum in the market you're going to have people who are going to be quite inclined to not fight the sale of an object or a collection when the time comes because of one of those three um, de- Ds.
0: Well, you guys keep uh, track of the major collector- we absolutely collectors do. and yes. collections. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I guess what I'm asking is, there are more collections of that caliber. Maybe, you know, well, of the Maclow cal- caliber out there that you guys are keep your eye
1: on. 100%. I mean, there are many, many collections. Listen, MacLoch, ca- the Maclow collection was very unique, and it's not that there are, you know, hundreds of them. But collections, at least of that monetary value, there are many collections out there, and collectors who collect at that level, they may not be in a position yet in which they will be sold. So that's another thing. You know, there has to be something that is the moment that causes the trigger moment that causes the decision to sell a collection. Some will be donated. To museums, some are gifted to family members at death, though there's a lot of other ways to dis, you know dispose of such a collection. But most of the time, you know, selling them is usually the easiest way to address the varying competing interests of family members, museums, etc. So it is inevitable that many of the collections that we are aware of and helping to build at this moment will eventually come to auction.
0: And do the families sort of uh, do this in advance now? I mean, you know, so many of these collections are of such extraordinary va- value, maybe not, you know, value that was planned uh, initially, uh, and... and Even just being a a caretaker of them is an expensive proposition. So are are families in an earlier stage making these kinds of decisions to think through how to, you know, uh, either disperse the collection or do estate planning?
1: Absolutely. We see that a lot of collectors are working, you know, very early on in their collecting journey with lawyers who are helping to sort of craft their estate planning. And part of that is that decision of how are you going to address these works at the time of your death? Are there works that your children or your family members would want? Are there ones that you would like to donate? In which case, we need to start having conversations with museums now, because nowadays, you can't always assume that a museum will want the works that you have sort of, you know, earmarked for them. It's often not that they do not want them, and they will, you know, actually reject your gift, which is a bad situation if you've already assumed it, and you're dead, (laughs) and then uh, your lawyers have to deal with that.
0: Well, what what happens in those kinds of cases if work is rejected? I'm assuming it doesn't have any effect on its market value. Whether it has market yeah, value or not right. is not changed by the fact that the, a museum might have said, "Hey, we've got you know seven of those uh, already."
1: You've got to go back to the drawing board with the executor of the estate at that point and say, "Okay, now that that plan is dashed, you're going to have to figure out another way to." dispose of this item that would be kind of more or less in line with whatever the decedent would have wished. So it's, they do have the discretion to make a reasonable decision in that way, but it's always complicated when you stray from the general outlines of what the person had dictated in their will. You know, you want to stay as true to the intention of the will as possible, and the more you stray, the more you put yourself as an executor at risk of a possible legal challenge.
0: And there's an earlier phase where people are, are more and more in the market people are uh, participating by um, acquiring works to be donated uh, as a way to acquire other wo- yes. works or to support artists uh, or, or just because over time they've had relationships and they want to make gifts you know uh, as either a show of good faith or support uh, so far is, is that is that at all changed by? this sort of environment where there's so much more art being bought and and sold or
1: I mean, I think to some degree it does change the the equation, certainly as far as donations are concerned. There's less of a need for it, right? You don't have that same, you know, quid pro quo of like, okay, well, you can buy this one picture at my gallery, but you have to buy another one of equal caliber and donate it to X museum because there's there's more supply. There's just more out there, and museums aren't as starved necessarily, I think, for those opportunities. But, you know, collectors really are thinking, I think, much more ahead than they used to about how they're their legacy is going to be formed and part of that is what museums will they donate things to what will you know what will their sale at auction look like and there we're definitely seeing clients who are thinking about kind of almost planning their own funeral in that sense in advance and there were some clients in the past years who Really, before they died, wanted to sell, and because of the charitable nature of the, you know, the way the collection was structured and owned, they were able to do that without major tax consequence. And a number of years ago, we sold the Mandel collection, and that was a situation where, you know, Morton Mandel was in his late 90s. He had this collection worth over 100 million dollars. He had been really excited about amassing it, you know, from the primary market over the years, and he wanted to, you know, in his late 90s be in the skybox at Sotheby's watching it all go down and actually see the market validate the choices that he made 20 years earlier
0: that that market validation is probably one of the, I think, least understood aspects of uh, all of this, that uh, for many people, the money is l- not nearly as important as the validation.
1: 100%. You made a right choice when you picked up that one particular artist that maybe wasn't that important, and you bought them in 1982 when they were no one, and now everyone agrees with you that that is an absolutely you know, star example of uh, contemporary art.
0: Well I think that is one of the things we saw in the Macleod's Absolutely 100%. Right the things that were of great value were pretty much value a number could be put on them a buyer could be found there was a little bit of bidding but it wasn't like you know oh you had mispriced it and all but there were many other objects you know that there was very strong bidding on and people were clearly you know validating those choices and saying this is an example that I'm never going to see again and it's worth paying whatever I need to pay Absolutely Geographically, again, you keep in touch with a lot of collectors. Is there a change? Certainly not, maybe over the next uh, last year or two with pandemic and people relocating and, all, and just in general, has there been a change in how Sotheby's approaches uh, or where you see the collectors? Are they in different locations? Are they all in Palm Beach? They <laughs>
1: You know, I think it's actually the, I don't know that it's necessarily, as you said, a pandemic phenomenon. I think that in the past year or two, we have seen really more of a democratization of the geography of where art is purchased. We are really seeing, you know, 35% U.S., 34%, you know, Europe, 35%. Asia in a way that I think in years past, you knew where the, the the sort of geography that was dominating that season was. I think that we see in certain sales or in certain moments a lot of bidding from one over another. But if you actually look at it in a kind of more global way, you're gonna look at all of our sales and see that it's pretty evenly split, which is unique. You know, obviously everyone knows in the 80s it was all about Asia and Japan and then it became the Russian oligarchs that were buying everything up. I, I think we're seeing a little bit more of a, of a plateau there
0: and things moving sort of equally between different areas
1: absolutely yeah and i think one of the interesting things though that is a little different is that we're seeing a lot of western art do incredibly well in asia and the contem- in contemporary art things that are in the past perhaps not the kinds of things you would think of as being Asian taste. Um
0: the Hamilton Aphrodite is a fantastic fantastic isn't?
1: example. There you go. You know, I think that there are a lot of of new collectors in Asia and who are just thinking about things very differently in terms of it's not their parents or their grandparents collection. They're thinking outside of their traditional, you know, sort of geographic and historical contexts. And they're just, you know, really opening their horizons to new opportunities.
0: Uh, Just so so the listeners can understand, the Hamilton Aphrodite is a um, marble statue, uh, a Roman statue, that was acquired by the Duke of Hamilton in the 18th century. So when the Grand Tour was at its peak, agriculturally wealthy British aristocrats were going to Italy and bringing home their canalettos and their statues, he brought this uh, object. And then a 100 and some odd, 40 years later, it was purchased by William Randolph Hearst, who's, you know, enshrined in uh, American lore and cinema as, you know, the the, gr- the great figure representing all of those uh, robber barons who bought up all the objects from Europe when America was wel- wealthy. And so it's oddly fitting that in this day and age, in the 21st century, it should be bought by an Asian uh, client for a, a, a large sum. Very large sum. $26 million. Uh.
1: With premiums, yes.
0: Going forward, having had this extraordinary uh, uh, year, what do you guys um, expect to happen in uh, 22? Is it uh, going to be a retrenchment, We, you know, starting our engines and it's going to take off from here? What, what are your expectations?
1: I mean, I think that we're... Our focus this year, and I think it will most certainly be our focus next year, is this balance between the digital and the physical spaces and experiences, because we're still not out of the pandemic. We are still very much in in the midst of it, especially right now in in December. So we're thinking about how to transform these opportunities into you know, sort of a more fluid ability to bring our clients in, either virtually or physically, into our spaces to have the experience of the artworks that they're perceiving. In exhibitions, or in a, you know looking at a virtual catalog, all of that I think is going to further grow in terms of especially our technology and how we engage clients with objects, as well as the actual physical, digital auction, hybrid live stream experience.
0: It, is it essential for a client? It, it, it used to be even five years ago to get. A client in front of a picture. If you were the advisor, if you were the auction house, you needed to get them in uh, the room. Now it seems like for many classes of objects, if they are familiar enough with, with them, sales can take place without their actually you know having seen it.
1: Absolutely. And that's something that has really grown enormously during the pandemic you know before the pandemic our online sales you would sell things occasionally for a million dollars or so but you know not that often because people really wanted to see the thing object in person now i think there's been such obviously we've been unable to show things in person until very recently where we've now become much more able to let people in our galleries but there's just this idea that clients were trusting of the connoisseurship of the you know specialists that they were working with and their judgment and their taste. And, you know, we can really virtually do a lot in terms of doing virtual walkthroughs, really close 3D, you know, high definition photography. So anything the client needed to feel comfortable that it was what they were looking for, coupled with that expertise and specialist reassurance, in many cases is actually all that
0: many clients need. So is some of what you're doing there uh, to do that sort of hybrid thing, taking very high resolution fo- photographs so that someone can pour over that, that, whether it's, you know, in detail on their phone yeah. or on a large screen, exactly.
1: And in, in when we're selling three D objects, which I think is where it's even more tricky to not see it in person, we've even been experimenting with some, you know, hologram technology, three D technology, where you can actually online when you're looking at the catalog, spin the objects around and actually get more of that experience of them in the room. We use a lot of you know augmented reality and AI type of experiences where you know you can place the object on your wall and. And that's all helped a lot in terms of giving scale and just giving a sense of like, well, this is what it would look like, which as you know, in days of old, and even now for the right clients, we will absolutely bring that piece to them, you know, and it can have a sleepover in your living room so you can see what it's like.
0: I was just thinking of the number of specialists who told me stories about having to grab a little Picasso, get on a plane, bring it to a client's house and find something to do for six hours. exactly, Exactly.
1: Exactly. Right. While the... Client sort of gets, gets, gets to know it a little bit better.
0: So that's still going to happen. That's though. still going mean, to
1: happen. Um, you know, obviously there were a lot of restrictions on it happening recently, but now that we're able to travel much more freely, that will continue to
0: happen. But it's sort of hit or miss whether someone requires that. I mean, I, I think uh, what you're saying is... is Not everyone
1: needs that anymore you know and there are still you know certain jurisdictions or geographies where we can't get to you know because for example asia it's very difficult for us to travel to hong kong right now from the states so for us to send something and have a person go with it it would be a little hard so in general we're we're relying on those technologies a lot more
0: other predictions uh, uh, around all, all of this
1: You know, I think one of the things we're going to continue to see, and that we started to see a little bit with the Constitution, with some other things that we saw this year, were the resurgence of our collectors as trophy hunters. So it's not just the idea of a collector thinking of themselves as, I buy contemporary art and that's what I buy. It's more about people who are now at the level of collecting, where they transcend categories and are simply thinking about extraordinary objects and experiences. And that's something that we're going to be doing more and more of in terms of that melding of, you know, putting the Constitution in a contemporary sale. All of that kind of thing will continue to grow because the, the number of collectors who have been buying outside of their traditional categories this year is extraordinary, really far surpassing any expectations that we ever had.
0: <clears throat> well, the, in the old days, the whole point of these categories was that you had all these dealers coming to town, you know, twice a year. And so it was good to have all the Impressionist. Right, uh, exactly. Uh, uh, it, was, so. it was a
1: convenience thing. You know, now this is just transcending that kind of uh, of opportunity. And, you know, we, we're seeing it at every level. Obviously, the Constitution, it is at a very high price point. But we had a sale of Meissen and porcelain in September that happened to be on view at the same time as Maclow. So we had a number of clients in the building who were there, obviously, for MACLO, who happened to walk through the Mice and Porcelain exhibition. Not something they ever would have thought about or thought about collecting. And many of them actually did engage and buy at very high levels in that sale. Why? Because they were totally transfixed by the story. They really got into the rest, it was a restitution, so they were very interested in the restitution story. They started watching the videos, they read the catalog entries, and suddenly it wasn't about that teacup, right? Because they don't collect teacups and they probably didn't even know what mice was prior to walking into that gallery. But it was about the experience the opportunity the unique moment in time to own that one teacup that belonged to king william the you know fifth in his court and then threat through nazi went through world war ii and nazi looted art confiscation and this and that so it's you're buying an experience. It's not just buying an object.
0: Well, restitution is a great um, uh, subject. Do you do you see that being? I don't want to say a steady supply, but it it, it certainly seems to, that that there's momentum gathering in restitution cases. Not the idea like, hey, it's too far go- gone yeah. and, and all. So, and I know you have a very strong restitution department, both in the research and the understanding of uh the the legal issues so uh, again using using your knowledge of what yeah. you, do you see more of these kinds of restitution sales
1: this is something that i've been hearing my entire career this question right because i'm i'm an art lawyer by background and this is what and i did restitution for most of my life so people would always say well certainly i mean how many how many claimants can there be left i mean this is we're now talking uh, 70 years ago or 80 years past the war like how many how how long can this go on and i think that you know as you point out it, it ebbs and flows in terms of how people find out about the works and whether or not they're in a position to make claims but As long as there are things that are misplaced or displaced, I think it's going to continue to go on. Because especially at this moment in time, we really see an appetite globally for people to write historical wrong. And I think that's that's what we're looking at it as. You know, it's about writing a historical wrong. It's more than just, you know, this object and this family and the money exchange.
0: That's an excellent point. There is so much of a broader theme about equity in the world that it it, it does give more impetus. And I think there's also the institutions are under more pressure than individuals, still plenty of places where uh, there's... Absolutely.
1: Especially, you know, from an ethical perspective, right? Because in Europe, there are both legal and ethical reasons to make right because of the way that these restitution committees have been formed in the various countries. The United States has never felt themselves to be connected to this. Because they obviously were not part of the looting of these objects, so they've always felt themselves to be another aggrieved victim in a way, right? So all of the American museums, you know, the Norton Simon being one of the most famous, um, has always felt that they, you know, really just they don't have a dog in this fight. They're a victim too. Like they don't. Why should they return this? And I think that's something that we'll also see start to change a bit more. You know, there's a bit more public outcry and outrage that might be listened to.
0: And I don't want to say they're hiding behind the idea of public trust, but. But part of their position is, like, we're already here as part of the public trust to, to, uh, to steward these objects. Somehow removing them from us doesn't really serve a, a purpose, except it serves this purpose of righting the, 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 the wrong.
1: Absolutely. Exactly right.
0: Do you have, do you have other uh, predictions?
1: The other big prediction would be relating to Asia and i yeah. think it has a lot to do with what we were talking about earlier which is this idea that western artworks are going to continue to be a major focus for asian collectors and specifically for the market in asia itself you know just this year alone i think the mark the record for the highest price ever paid for an for western artwork in asia has been broken three times you know and i think that's a, a notable statistic because it's just going to keep happening over and over again it's not going to become an anomaly that a western artwork sells for 25 35 million dollars it's going. To become the normal thing that happens in in hong kong as often as it does in new york or london
0: no well we have some significant um, guarantors who are uh, uh, domiciled in asia there's already been in the gulf the establishment of these museums that are essentially global culture where it's syncretic bringing works from all different places and the appetite seems very clear you know so many of those collectors started out repatriating uh, Sino-French artists, you know, Chinese artists who had gone to live in France Mm -hmm. pre-World War War II and stayed there. And part of their experience is actually creating the the market for those or or the recognition of those uh, uh, artists. So it, it shouldn't be a surprise that they're also interested in the same modern artists from that same period.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And it's part of this sort of idea of the integration of art outside of its categories or silos. And I think that's something that Sotheby's has been really a pioneer of with the way we work with Latin American art. You know, we used to have a Latin American art sale. And then we realized that we were limiting it in such a way that really only Latin American collectors were buying in the Latin American art sale. Once we incorporated Latin American art into the broader canons of Impressionism and contemporary art, and people were able to see those Latin American artists next to comparable artists who were painting at exactly the same moment in time and part of the same movements, it totally changed the market for Latin American art. And I think that's exactly what's happening in Asia. You're looking at these artists in a bigger sense, not just as, you know, this. that sort of other, you know?
0: Talk to me a little bit about that. that you are of, of Cuban descent, so you're a Latinx yeah. <laughs> uh, executive at a, a major auction house. You certainly, a number of the most important collectors in the world are either... Um, <clears throat> Latin descent Americans or uh, uh, Central and South American uh, uh, buyers and all, all. Uh, just as your experience is there a because the art world is so global has this you know made your being Latinx. Uh, Irrelevant, relevant to, uh, the work that you do, your experience. I mean, it's a, it's a, so much has happened in the world the last couple of years about, uh, identity and, um, diversity. I don't mean to make you a poster child for <laughs> it. But- But, but it is part of your experience and it's worth, you know, getting a chance to ask you. If
1: anything else, I think it just speaks to diversity of perspective. Um, and I think that certainly when it comes to conversations about, you know, integration and things of that, I think I do have a a unique, you know, position from which to look at and, and opine on these issues. Um, just because, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that sometimes get lost in translation and people think that you know, just because you are of a particular ethnicity, that you would want this to be a certain way. And I think there had always been this idea, I mean, almost perhaps a little bit like paternalistic of like, well, Latins would like to buy in their own thing. You know, they want their own sale. And it makes them feel special, you know, and they like the cocktail parties, you know, and things like that. Um, And I I think that, frankly, that may play onto some truths, but at the same time, it wasn't doing the market any favors. And, you know, I I, I can't take credit for integration. That wasn't something that I was directly responsible for, but I'm a huge proponent of it because the minute it was something we started to do, it just, it was game changing. And it was something that I always internally, as both you know, prior to coming to Sotheby's and being at Sotheby's, thought to myself, why do we have to have this Latin sale? Like, these are works that should be part of a big world
0: and that sale encompassed some very different categories the uh, you know the colonial the royal... colonial
1: all the way to the most contemporary um, works that are now type of works so it really doesn't make any sense to lump them together but I think this is something that we're going to see in a much broader way beyond Latin right the integration began with Latin but I think that this is just how people collect we collect collectors collect in a way that it reflects their lifestyle and it's not about like this very strict category you know if you look at something as traditional as Chinese works of art there are pieces of Chinese works of art like Chinese furniture which could be a piece of 20th century design in it's minimalist aesthetic and when you're thinking about it really strictly as well I'm not a Chinese furniture collector so why would I ever go to that sale you're gonna miss out on an opportunity of being able to really fulfill your aesthetic in a better way you know if you collect contemporary and have all these pieces of like genre furniture you know what that one piece of Chinese furniture actually might go quite well with the look you're trying to create and the lifestyle you're trying to convey
0: and there's also a tremendous interest among Chinese buyers for works of uh, painters of the African diaspora. So we've got this wide range, mostly figurative painters these days, who are getting bought up as much or more in Hong Kong than they are in Well, we world.
1: actually, interesting you mentioned that, we saw a huge influx of Asian collectors for Latin American works when we did the integration. And one work, I mean, obviously there's a connection, but Wilfredo Lam, the Cuban artist, is part Chinese, half Chinese. So that was something that also... Connected, and there's nothing Chinese about his artworks. It's actually really Afro-Cuban in, in in origin. But the fact that he is a half, you know, Chinese-Cuban uh, artist was interesting to them. So there's there's all sorts of other reasons for them to look at these works, even though they probably never would have thought too much about them had they not been exposed to them in another context.
0: So I don't want to keep you too long. But the last thing is to to ask you a little bit about. There's been a broader strategy. Uh, at Sotheby's to sort of expand into Sotheby's as a luxury, I don't want to say retailer, but maybe as a retailer. And, And you now sell a broader range of valuable objects some of them uh you know vintage or historical some of them new and uh, in, in partnership with luxury brands and and all uh uh one i assume that continues and is sort of part of the way forward uh for the organization but does that have an effect on what you do are you involved in that part of it or is or, or is you know the uh, sourcing for the major auctions strategically related to the the broader strategy of uh, luxury
1: well luxury is a separate division at sotheby's so it ha- and it encompasses both the auction of luxury items like you know jewelry and, and all of the other categories wine etc that we that we auction off but it is also part of our retail strategy so luxury actually has both of those arms and then so does so does global fine arts so as part of our kind of marketplace uh, opportunity where you can walk into sotheby's at york avenue right now you will see that there is essentially what we call the emporium which is a store and that store which you could, you know, pay with a credit card and walk out with a little bag with an object for immediate satisfaction of your desire to purchase something encompasses both fine art, furniture, as well as luxury and, you know, the more traditional goods. But this idea of kind of having more of this retail experience obviously is more driven by luxury because they're the types of objects that people would maybe buy on a whim um, in a more spontaneous way. And it's, I think it's part of our focus now, part of our new leadership, and also part of the sort of 2021-22 drive towards throwing out the rule book and not thinking about what is an auction house traditionally, and thinking of ourselves as a global art business, a business that is very focused on luxury experiences of all kinds. And that means, you know, the purchase of incredible works of art, incredible, you know, historical objects, a great pair of really cool, unique sneakers, a purse, you know, (laughs) like everything under the sun.
0: All right. Last question. You brought up the luxury experience and uh, I would be remiss if I did not reflect back on last year. You had this sale in um, Las Vegas, with the contents of the Picasso uh, restaurant. And I know that is a a bit of a a unique situation, but it certainly seemed that uh, having a sale out West that was an event in and of itself was a great opportunity to do some of the things you just talked about of like bringing things together and having collectors run across things or because they were there just feel more, you know, inclined to participate and all. Is that something that you can actually plan for? Is it something that you can only do if the right conditions apply?
1: I mean, I think it's a little of both, right? I think that we can try to open our eyes to those opportunities more where in the past we might have been like, no, no, that's not for us. You know, that's not a 70s thing. We wouldn't take a, you know, auction on the road to go to a casino, you know, (laughs) that sounds so not us. I think that part of it is having the the aptitude to be open to opportunities. But then there are also some things that are very unique, right? The contents of the Picasso restaurant are not going to be sold, you know, on a yearly basis. So that, of course, is going to be much more of the moment. But I think that it's also part of our strategy of thinking about, you know, cultivating new clients and thinking differently about who the Sotheby's collector or client is. You know, we have 43% of our clients, year, like in every sale, are new to us. That's an extraordinary number. Forty-three percent, completely new collectors. It's going up to that level. Yes, that is the number as of our this moment. So. That's, that's, a, that's a great opportunity, and I think for us Las Vegas was a great opportunity to reach perhaps more of MGM's crowd of ultra high net worth people who have certainly the means to buy at Sotheby's, but never thought of themselves as art collectors. And we saw a number of works that were you know sold in that MGM auction going to people who were not traditional Sotheby's collectors.
0: I know it's not something you can count on at all, but that really was an eye-opening uh, event. It, it, when you first saw it, you thought, wow, well, this is risky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I could, I, even I, who don't know what you guys know about how things can go wrong, imagine there were so many ways that it could go wrong. And what was impressive was how right it went. Um, both in what was visible, you know, the people watching the auction, but clearly from what I've uh, discussed with some of your colleagues, what took place, you know, and others, some of the people who were, uh, guess there what took place in La- Las Vegas it seemed like sort of the ideal environment that you're trying to have that luxury experience uh, and and coming up with different ways of presenting that to, to people seems you know both the challenge and the opportunity
1: absolutely and I think the hallmark of the new Sotheby's, if we want to call it that is this idea of taking really calculated risks that can you know change and transform the market and I think that's what we've been doing and we'll continue to be doing in 2022
0: that sounds like the perfect last word thank you you so much Maria Claudia thank you thank you for joining us at the Artelligence podcast for more episodes listen on Apple podcasts Spotify SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to download the live art app or visit us at liveart.io Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence podcast. We're looking forward to it.